beware that thou pass not to such a place, for the Syrians are there in ambush. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God had told him, and prevented him, and looked well to himself there not once but twice. And the heart of the king of Syria was troubled for this thing. And calling together his servants, he said, Why do you not tell me who it is that betrays me to the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, No one, my lord, O king, but Eliseus the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel all the words that thou speakest in thy privy chamber. What you whisper in your chamber, this prophet tells the king what you are saying. And he said to them, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And they told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent thither horses and chariots and the strength of an army. And they came by night and beset the city. And the servant of the man of God, rising early, went out and saw an army round about the city, and horses and chariots. And he told him, saying, Alas, 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 my lord, what shall we do? These three alases, I think the only place they occur is when this man is talking, so you almost have the character of the person in... Because I never saw them together <laughs> except in this connection. Because every time he talks, he always begins with that. But he answered, Fear not, for there are more with us than with them. So that's what Alicia said. Fear not, we have more on our side than on their side. Now when you study this, when you put the map of the world before your eyes and see where the Christians are and see the terrible condition they are in, demoralized, betrayed, betrayed by their leaders, you see how small their number compared to the rest of the world. That's a little bit the sense of the statistics of there you can get scared. Our Lord himself said, who goes to war without sitting down and making account and saying, what are the forces on my side? What are the forces I am going to encounter? Now, one of the things we have to fight against in all our crusade is discouragement, as you know. The Veritas Radio Network is guaranteed the right to offend, annoy, agitate, shout heresy, and entertain. You should start programming right now. Kind of like the cultural sewage served up on Bravo or CMT, only it's on 24 hours a day. Except Sundays. When the truth gets you angry and you throw your smartphone, remember, no one is forcing you to listen to the truth on the Veritas Radio Network. You can't handle the truth. You're doing that of your own. 
That's what makes this country great, and any gay marriage pointless. That's offensive! So there isn't much you can do about it, Chowderhead. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Grab a book, take a vow, and conform your mind to reality. Otherwise, you're just another Judas-inspired Karl Marx wannabe, and your children will steal your credit card number to buy tickets to the Miley Cyrus Twerkers Ball. I came in like a Are you ready? Let's get it on. On the Veritas Radio Network's Crusade. this edition of the Crusade Channel's Philosophia Perennis course. Tonight we will be studying apologetics, lecture number six. Lecture number five from last week is being uploaded right now, so if you missed last week, you'll be able to download that during the course of the program. You can join us on our chat room. It is live at mikechurch.com and uh, find the Philosophy of Perennis tab there under Catholicism, and then go to the home page, and then the chat room will appear on its own page. Something uh, nefarious happened, if you're wondering, to uh, my, my, my website, and some files got uh, deleted by someone who was not I. So it's in the process of being restored right now, but the chat room is up and it's working just fine. So we will be joined now from the St. Benedict Center in Richmond, New Hampshire, by Brother Andre Marie, who it sounds like must have had to run up the stairs, uh, over, the, over the river, through the woods, to the monastery he went. But he made it in in time. Brother, uh, you're burning too many candles at both ends on this day, I think. Am I? <laughs> Well, you couldn't do the—you you, you had no time for a promotion this morning, 
And it sounds like you just made it into the um, uh, into your Skype connection, just under the wire you slid in. So we're glad that you're there anyway. So uh, we're going to do apologetics number six tonight. Indeed, we are. And as I've been remarking to anyone that knows me, every lecture gets just a little bit more intense and a little bit more interesting and a little bit more provocative, if you will. This one, this lecture was heavy on the difference between um, Catholics and uh, Islamics or Muslims and on the principal differences uh, between the two. And then a brother went into a history of, uh, of Islam uh, by dates. And uh, there, was some, uh, there was some dating and some history in there that I had never heard before. So uh, where would you like to start? Um, I guess sort of an overview kind of thing. And then maybe we can get, get, go, go into some of the specifics. Um, basically, bro brother begins this with uh, saying that the, the, the um, supreme question of apologetics is, why should I be a Catholic? Right. And, and then he says, well, what are your alternatives? <laughs> so, so he says, well, the, the, this, is, this is, or what else would you want to be? And he kind of chuckles, and that's the way he introduces the, the, the other alternatives that exist out there, um, just so that the, the, the class can get something of, a, of an acquaintance of, of what, what the other religions are out there, as they're called, the other world religions. Um, and he, get, he gave some statistics, which... I want. I actually wanted to see something more recent, so I looked up some more recent um, statistics, um, and I've got some of those that I can sh shoot out. Um, so, for instance, yeah. Well, why don't I just hold off on that a little bit? Okay. Um, and uh, so he lists specific religions. First of all, in, in within Christianity, you have Protestantism. And orthodoxy, aside from from Catholicism. So orthodoxy, I'm using the term as the name of the the um, Eastern churches that are not in communion with uh, the Holy See, that are not under the Pope. So that would include, of course, the Russian Orthodox, which is the, by far the largest, the Greek Orthodox, the Serbians, the the um, numerous other, all all identifiable by the name of a nationality, okay. um, numerous other communions, most of which are in communion with each other. Although there are some groups that are called autocephalous and they don't, they don't have communion with the other Orthodox churches. So that's, uh, that, but that, that's a small percentage of, um, of Christianity. Um, but, uh, Catholicism, by the way, represents about half of the, of the numbers of w the world's Christians. And it is the largest religion in the world. Numerically, Catholicism is the largest religion, uh, in the world as far as numbers of people who profess it. Okay. Um, second is Islam. Um, then brother lists, uh, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, and then there are lots of other smaller religions, smaller sects from from the Orient, uh, from a from Asia. I guess, I guess the Orient is offensive now, uh, but from Asia, <laughs> uh, like Taoism and Shintoism, and um, some that are even less um, populous than those. At the time that Brother Francis wrote this, there were 
at the time that Brother Francis gave the lecture, rather, there were 600,000 Catholics in the world. Um, now there are, let's see, there are 2.2 billion Catholics, 2.2 billion Christians, and about half of those are Catholics. So there's about 1.1 billion Catholics. Um, 1.1 and 1.2 billion Catholics. Um, so there's more of us. In fact, there's numerically, there's twice as many Catholics. Isn't that interesting? Twice as many Catholics in the world from when Brother Francis cited these statistics. Now, the statistics I'm citing are a few years old. They go back to 2012. They go back to a study from 2012 that's based upon numbers that were available uh, in 2010. I don't think anything's revised this uh, this Pew, Pew study. This is a major, major um, <coughs> study by, by the Pew Research Center for Religion and Public Life. Excuse me. Sure. Um, so um, Catholicism is is in the first position, but it will soon be superseded. In fact, um, the the the, uh, the 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 Christian popula- population will soon be superseded by the Muslim population. Now, it's not. In a sense, it's not fair to compare the Muslim population to the Catholic population when you consider that, like Christianity, Muslim ha- uh, Islam has different uh, groups within it that are generally fit under the umbrella um, Islam. And uh, so you've got Shiites uh, and Sunni Muslims. Sunni by far is the largest. Then you have the Shiites, mostly mostly from what used to be the Persian Empire. So uh, Iran is the largest concentration, I believe, of Shiites, but they're also in other countries like Syria. And in some countries, uh, they're a persecuted minority because the Sunnis are a a majority in that country. Um, But you've got other little sects, strange little sects of Islam, some of them very odd. I mean, for instance, the Baha'i, are, are, nobody thinks of them as Muslim, but they're they're a believe it or not they're a spl- spinoff of a Muslim sect, um, who became ironically enough complete pacifists, <laughs> uh, the very the very opposite of what of what Islam is in that regard. So um, th- those are the main religions that brother brother speaks of: Protestant, Orthodox, aside from Catholic, on in the in the general label Christian, and then. Um, the 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 dominant religion after that is clearly Islam, and that's soon going to dominate. By 2050, according to the Pew Research Center, by 2050, the world's Muslim population will roughly equal the world's Christian population, and by 2070, it will supersede it. That's incredible. That's that's what's projected. Um. And of course, Hinduism at the time had 500 million people, um, which isn't too far behind the Catholics at that time. Um, so th- these are the now. Mm, let's see. I think that that's a. I'm just doing an overview right now. Brother Francis talks about how um, some of the false religions that entered the world came around the same time. Um, as the the major prophets around 600 BC, he noted that Isaiah the prophet was already dead, 
but Daniel was alive, Jeremiah is alive, and Ezekiel were alive. Um, and uh, people in the world, for some strange reason at that time, um, their, the messianic expectations were, were great. And this is something that's not well known, but I've talked about it a little bit uh, in, in when, when I, did, I did a show, did a reconquest some time back on the, the, the concept of the continuity of religion. And the concept of the continuity of religion is something that Brother Francis would 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 really sort of take for granted, and and it would be assumed uh, in what he says um, whenever he's teaching on subjects like this. But the the concept of the continuity of religion is that for for all basically summarized quickly for all history from the time of Adam and Eve till today, there's always been one true religion. And this, of course, is not simply to say something. Um, shockingly uh, exclusive or, or shockingly, you know, um, um, make, make over, overblown claims about one's own religion. Okay. The point is, if you respect the truth at all, uh, if any religion is true, there can only be one that's true. Uh, otherwise, the only alternatives is, are that they're all false. <laughs> that's the only alternative. Bro- brother, can we just stop right there? Because I think some people may not have uh, attended any of the philosophy of Pernanus courses and may not understand um, the principle of non-contradiction. Something can't be true and false at the same time. So they can't all be true, as you just said, and as Brother says. Um, uh, but one of them must be true. That would mean uh, that all the other ones then aren't true, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, why is that I mean, so you, hard to understand? How has the modern world succeeded in so corrupting and perverting just a basic, simple knowledge of the principle of non-contradiction? Yeah. Th- this, by the way, is something that you can get in arguments over that can last for hours. But if you if you begin with the principle that there there are let's just pretend that there are ten religions in the world. Okay. Just you know, make it even. <laughs> Um, they're either, they're either all false and religion is nonsense or they're, or one of them is true. They can't, there, there cannot be more than one of them. That's true when you're talking about things that have conflicting claims. And by the way, this cuts to the quick of so much bad thinking about religion. People tend to think of religion like you think of the New Orleans Saints, Mike. I mean, do you pull for the Saints at all? I, I know do. Everybody, I know we all probably hate the NFL at this point, but <laughs> do you do you still pull for the Saints? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. They're 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 part of the fab uh, the fabric of the city. I mean, you can't yeah, go and you can't so, swing a dead cat without hitting a Saints clock or a, a napkin holder or a placard on a sign or something. So yeah, absolutely. And, and and you were around in the in, in in the bad old days when they were called the Aints and the when Aints they and hardly the ever won ever. Yes, uh, yes. And when the fans went to went to the games with the bags over their heads. Um, but I mean, if you if you um, you you don't think that there's only one true football team. I mean, you know that there are other football teams. <laughs> it's a good thing they might, I don't. That might even be better than the Saints. Uh, you just pull for the Saints because that's your team. Yes. Right. Yes. Correct. And um, but you know, it, but if your if your brother-in-law or whatever moves moves to Pittsburgh and suddenly becomes a Steelers fan, 
you're not going to shun him as an apostate. Probably. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I don't know. I guess some Saints fans can be very serious. Football fans can be serious about these things. But it would be ridiculous for you to shun him as an apostate and to, to, to think that somehow, you know, that he had com- completely abandoned the faith of your fathers. Uh, the idea is most people in their religious thinking tend to think of religions as football teams. They tend to think of religions like the rest of us think of, of athletic teams, uh, professional or even college athletic teams. It's my team. It's not because it's right. It's not because it's true. It's not because it's the best. It's not because of you know the colors, the mascot, the cheerleaders. It's because it's my team. Right. That's correct. So I like everything about it because it's my team. Now that now if you look at that from the term from the from the perspective of localism, yeah, that's that's neat. You know that you have something local that you're for. That's good. You know you should like the local beer. You should like the local whatever. Um, the local. F- Foods, cuisine, produce, all that. That's good. But that's not what religion is. <laughs> it's not a matter of, you know, it, I joke, you know, one of the brothers makes uh, maple syrup. And <laughs> we have a guy from New Hampshire that, in fact, you know him, uh, that brings us brings us maple syrup from elsewhere in, in New Hampshire. It's and good, too. one time he gave us a bunch of maple syrup. And I made the joke that those slouches in, in Vermont know nothing about making maple syrup. Keep in mind, New Hampshire and Vermont are right next to each other. We're like upside down versions of each other as far as the shape of the state. And it's the same place. I mean, you just drive a few miles, cross a river, and you're and you're in a different state. And it's like the same kind of maple trees and everything, right? So the joke is, you know, ours is the best maple syrup because it's from New Hampshire. <laughs> and the Vermont stuff stinks. And, I, and I'm just saying as a joke. I mean, Vermont maple syrup is famous. It's good. That's the way people think about their locales. You know, our stuff's better because it's our stuff. But that's got nothing to do with truth. That's just kind of a patriotism, right? Most people think of religion that way. Not Maybe not most people in the world, but most modern Americans tend to think of religion that way. Yeah, I've got my team, you know, and I like it. I mean, it's I think it's the best team. You know, we got we got the best this and that. But, you know. There are other teams, too, and, and, you know, we don't want to go offending them or anything. That, in my observation, that tends to be the way most people think about religion, if they think about it at all. Now, you, then you have a handful of people who are truly committed to whatever their religion is, um, true, true or false. But the idea is we have to get it through our, through our noodles that there is one true religion. There can only be one true religion. If there's not one true religion, then no religion is true then absolutely none of them is true. And if you try to come out with a middle position, which is to say, well, none of them have an exclusive claim to truth, but they all have truth about them. And if you sort of amalgamate them, you'll come up with the truth. Ultimately, that reduces down to none of them are true because they all make very specific truth claims and they all make very specific error claims about other religions. Even if the error claim is something like a noncommittal Unitarian type who says something like, well, I don't think any anybody has the full truth and all religions are good. That's actually saying that all religions aren't true. All the ones who claim make these exclusivist claims are are false in as much as they make that claim. So now some of these folks just absolutely don't believe in the principle of non-contradiction, in which case you can't reason with them. 
you know, it's that some kind of demons can only be driven out by prayer and fasting. Yeah. But if we're going to be logical about the whole thing, then we have to say either one of them is true or they're all false. There really isn't a middle ground, and we have to insist on that. And you might find yourself in an argument with an, with a non-Catholic, or God help you, a Catholic, who um, it, it, who, who will not agree with that statement. And and that's that's serious. But but the the concept of continuity of religion is that for all of history, there's only been one true religion from Adam and Eve, from the, from the very beginning of revealed religion. There's only been one true one, and it's had an increased amount of revelations given to it throughout the different dispensations as the different prophets come about and give their their revelations, and ultimately it's it's fulfilled in in Jesus Christ, and he founds a church and he sends the Holy Spirit to guide that church into all truth, as he himself explicitly said. Right, right. Um, and with that promise of having divine truth, with that promise that we will be guided into all truth, we know we have the strong conviction that our ours is that one true religion that stands in continuity with all true religion, from Adam and Eve uh, to our own day. Now. Um, in as, any religion that makes exclusivist truth claims is going to have something similar to say. The Muslims say this too. Boy, do they say it. I mean, they're going to use different words because they're not going to say that it was all fulfilled in Jesus. They're going to say Muhammad is the seal of the prophets. They'll actually say some unbelievably irrational things uh, about the exclusive exclusivity of Islam, like, for instance, that the Quran was written in the mind of Allah before creation. That's why. That's how they get away with their claim that um, th that the Quran is actually older than the Old Testament and it's older than the New Testament. And what they say is that the Old Testament and the New Testament are corruptions of the Quran. Never mind the fact that the Quran didn't didn't exist in writing until the time of Muhammad. Um, th they they absolutely insist that it's more ancient because it's it's virtually eternal because it was in the mind of God before creation. So when you're talking to a Muslim, unless he's been infected by crazy Western ideas, and those do exist, um, then then you're, you're talking to somebody whose claim is that he has an exclusive claim on truth. And Wherever Catholicism or Protestantism or Orthodoxy or Judaism or whatever agrees with Islam, that's just a nice little coincidence. But uh, wherever they part with Islam, that just proves that, as they say in the Quran, the Jews corrupted the Torah and the Christians corrupted the gospel. Um, so uh, anyway, the, the idea of exclusive truth claims, or just because other people make exclusive truth claims, doesn't mean that the concept of an exclusive truth claim is wrong. Quite frankly, truth is one. And if you accept that the solution to a math problem is three, and somebody else says it's two, and somebody else says it's seven, you, 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 have, to, you have to say that they're wrong. I mean, you don't have to be nasty about it, you don't have to shoot them, but you do have to say that if the answer to the math problem is three, the guy who says it's two and the guy who says it's seven are absolutely wrong. Truth is one, and it's the most intolerant thing. I mean, me metaphysically, truth is one of the most intolerant things that exists because it can't take competition from something else claiming to be true. 
that's just the very na nature of truth. Um, you, you still there, Mike? Can you hear me? Hello. I'm here, brother. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I, I thought I had lost you. No, no, you didn't lose me. I'm just listening and typing in the background. Okay. All right. So, um, around 600 BC, you get the Babylonian captivity. You've got the you've got the major prophets again, except for Isaiah, who's dead. Um, at that time, there was uh, there was a lot of hope for the Messiah. Now, that one true religion that we talked about that goes back to Adam and Eve, in the garden, right after the fall, they're promised a redeemer. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first good news. And when that first good news is, is, is given to Adam and Eve, they pass it down to their posterity so that there's this hope that uh, a Savior will come. And the promise of the Savior is made more explicit throughout the ages. And, you know, he, he's known as, you know, he who will be sent. He, there's, there are various ways of referring to him in the Old Testament. He's the anointed one, which in Hebrew is Moshiach, where we get the word Messiah from, um, which in Greek is Christos, so we call him the Christ. Um, so th this, this mysterious... Uh, person who's promised, this mysterious Savior who's promised to come, who will redeem us, who will save us, who will um, liberate us. There's all kinds of titles under which he's described in the Old Testament. This is, this is the major figure that uh, all true religion in the time of the Old Testament is pointing towards. And Brother Francis quotes Sister Catherine, uh, and I believe it's in the book Our Glorious Popes, where she, where she wrote about this, that all, all of the children of Adam, all of us, the whole race, has inherited some part of the true revelation that was given to Adam and Eve, and of course to Noah, because don't forget we're all descended from Noah as well. Um, and all of these people have some some percentage of it, and because we because it all goes back to some place near the Holy Land, everybody has this idea that the Messiah is going to come from that area. So in the Far East, they thought that the Messiah, who, and they wouldn't use the word Messiah, but this Redeemer, this, this, great, this great Savior, this Liberator, uh, one who's going to be enlightened, who's going to enlighten the rest of us, is going to come from the West. Because in, you know, in relation to Far East Asia, the Holy Land is West, isn't it? Right. And um, everyone else thought he was going to come from the east. Everyone west of the Holy Land thought he was going to come from the east. Everything converged on, on the Holy Land. And strangely, um, uh, there were prophecies that were known in Far East Asia. And sadly, um, they fell for Buddhism, which came from the west. Because Buddha came from India, which which compared to the rest of Far East Asia is West. So they fell for this stuff. They fell for Confucianism. They fell for for and and the strange thing. So around the same time, there's Buddha, there's Confucius, there's also Lao Tzu, who gives us Taoism. Strangely, um, and here's something that we Occidentals need to know about Asian religion. Religion. And that is that there's a certain ambiguity in the character of age, Asian 
religiosity? Uh, what is that character? Uh, one can actually belong to more than one religion, and there's no problem. Wow. So you've got— They take got their pluralism seriously. Both Buddhists and Taoists, or, or Buddhists and Shintoists, and because, because they're like philosophical approaches to life, and in some cases it's simply um, a family thing. Uh, many of the primitive Eastern religions were simply a form of ancestor worship. And even though Buddha basically said, I mean, the actual real historical character, Siddhartha Buddha, said, um, <clears throat> we shouldn't worry about the ancestors, we should worry about the present here. Uh, he didn't, it, it, Buddhism didn't effectively stamp out ancestor worship. So these, these religions can somehow coexist even in the same person. <laughs> so the statistics for these religions can be a little bit deceptive because you can't always separate out who is exactly what in these kind of oriental religions. And this tells you something about their approach to the nature of truth. Um, first of all, in fairness to Confucius and to Confucianism, it really isn't a religion. I mean, I don't claim to be an expert in Confucianism, uh, but it really is a philosophy. Uh, Confucius was more of a philosopher. He didn't talk much about religion. He didn't talk about God. He made no pre pretense of being a prophet. Um, and there are those who claim that Confucianism is sort of like Confu Confucianism is sort of to the to the Far East what Aristotelian is, Aristotelianism is to Greece. That it was the product of of, of a great thinker. Um, and it was really a sort of a, of an approach to, to, to philosophy rather than a, 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 any sort of a pretense at uh, religion and especially at any, any sort of a pretense at revealed religion. It does not claim to, to be uh, a supernatural revelation. And so and, and when you talk about African religion, well, you know, that's when it gets a Native American religion. Here you're talking about tiny little religious groups depending upon what tribe you belong to. It's not one set religion. It's just we worship our ancestors, we worship the sky, we worship... It becomes uh, uh, far from organized religion. It's a very disorganized religion based upon this sort of primitive worship of, um, of the, the, the elements. Actually, I don't think it would be just to call it primitive. <laughs> the reason is because... Monotheism is far more ancient than any of these things. Um, these were these things were actually much later developments. So th there, there's kind of looking at things in, in a nutshell. Um, all right. Um, yeah. So at the time, brother was teaching, there were a billion Christians in the world. Now there are 2.2 billion. So all of the statistics that he gives are are off uh, because it, the world population has gone up. Now, so we've talked about the ambiguity in Eastern religion. Um, interestingly enough, that 600 figure how, of how before before Christ, 600 uh, BC, you get you get um, Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism coming. Yes. And on the other side of the AD marker, the year 600 gives it roughly, uh, approximately, gives us another major religious uh, development, and that, of course, is Islam. So uh, that's 1,200 years later. It's on the, it's on the uh, AD side 
uh, of the year 600. <clears throat> and um, Brother Francis spent a lot of time talking about a dialogue with the Muslims. Um, I, I guess we can come back to that. But just a quick summary of Islam. You know, Mike, I just realized something. I am not in the chat room, and I'm trying to figure out how I get there. Uh, uh, th things do look a little bit different. <clears throat> Refresh the page. It should all be restored. Oh, okay. All right. Um, sorry about that. Um, yeah, I guess I'm on the wrong page. I'm, I'm at mikechurch.com. Where do I go from there? Uh, just I keep talking. I'll send you a link. Okay, great. All right. So, all right, all right. so um, the Islam, Muhammad, I mean, you think roughly the year 600. Muhammad's actually born... Um, Let's see, he starts the religion in 610. Um, the native religion to that place, the religion that was there when Muhammad um, came to some sort of religious consciousness, was a rock-worshipping religion <laughs> with some um, um, little elements, in fact, many elements of the true religion that was revealed um by God through Abraham. So we we don't have a, um, a exact knowledge of everything that they that they believed, but we know that they were cognizant of the fact that they were descended from Abraham, which they were. All the Arabs are through Ishmael. Uh, but the religion fell into a sort of paganism, and they worshipped rocks, literally rocks, <laughs> not even rocks that were carved to look like humans or animals, just rocks. And the remnants uh, today of the of the ancient rock worship of the Arabian Peninsula is the, um, the 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 thing that's kept in the um, temple at Mecca. That when they make the Hajj, when they make the pilgrimage to Mecca, they circumambulate this thing. And I'm trying to remember the name of it; it's not coming. But they the, it's a it's a very large black rock that's square shaped and they circumambulate this thing and there's a muslim tradition which says that it used to be white but it got blackened with all the sins of mankind <laughs> so this is the only remnant of islamic um of the of the ancient arabian religion that was contemporary with with muhammad other than that muhammad expurred, expunged all of the idols that had been put in the temple at mecca his family took care of the temple at mecca they were sort of like i guess you call them the sacristans of the temple at mecca he had some sort of a religious awakening of some sort whatever we might call it probably diabolical and he he purged the the temple of its idols he got booted out of mecca fled to medina got an army and in, in 622, he was kicked out of, of Mecca in 622, but he quickly gets an army in Medina. Um, and, you know, he was a very skilled man. He was a bandit. He was a pirate. Um, he was something of a military leader. Um, and he, he, not only that, but he was a prophet, a, a self-styled prophet, probably with diabolical assistance. And he gets the army <clears throat> from Medina, and they go to Mecca, and in 622, uh, he he defeats his opponents in in in, Me in Mecca, and puts them to death. And now he's ruling Mecca. 
from the beginning, Islam is both church and state. It's everything. It's basically a, a totalitarian religious, religious political entity. There is no distinction between church and state in Islam. There might be now in the mind of a modern Muslim, but the whole concept of Sharia law does not respect that distinction. And this is why as soon as you get a Muslim majority and they're able to institute Sharia law, you, you will have a brutal uh, government. You will have a brutal and extremely intolerant government. By comparison, the most intolerant regimes of, um, of, of Catholic Christendom were quite tolerant. Um, there, were, there was always a tolerance to some degree, anyway, not ex not not like the American, you know, religious liberty, but there's always a tolerance to some degree of other religions, especially Jews, who could live among themselves and so forth. This was always tolerated. Yeah, there were times of of uh, atrocities. There were times of injustices, for sure. I'm not going to whitewash that, but there was always a, a a principle that that Jews would be tolerated. For instance. Christian sects is different <laughs> because Jews didn't claim to be Christian. In fact, in the Spanish Inquisition, it was only when Jews claimed to be Christian that we had trouble. When uh, when the Jews when when the, when the uh, Christian when you when you're baptized and you claim to be a Christian, well, then you're under the authority of the Church. So if you start preaching Christian heresy, well, that's a problem because now you now you're in trouble with the Church, and the Church and the state were united but distinct in islam there is not that distinction it doesn't exist so there might be a, a logical distinction but there's not a real distinction between the church and the state this is why so many of the states were were headed by men who were called caliphs because khalifa in arabic means successor What's, what are they successors to to muhammad Muhammad was both the religious leader and the civil leader. So this is this is the nature of of that of that religion as far as their approach to polity goes. And once you have a believing Muslim, as you say, an orthodox Muslim, orthodox you know, I, I Muslim, you, you talk about one of these guys who does some some act some horrible atrocity. You talk about him going orthodox, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so. You've got your finger on something there because the Muslims, uh, the, the Muslim conception is that a, a true believing Muslim thinks that um, uh, Islam has to be the religion of the society. You you have something like tolerance for other religions, and those religions are very limited to ahli kitab, if I'm pronouncing it right, the people of the book, and that would be Christians and Jews. But they're fairly selective in the way that they and in, in the way that they uh, practice this tolerance. And even when even in the most tolerant of historical Muslim regimes, um, you could stay a Christian or you could stay a Jew, but you had to pay the tax and you had to pay pay the the, the dimi tax, and it was pretty pretty crippling. Um, so you were reduced to what's called dimitude. Um, and that I believe Dimi is the, the, the Turkish word there. There's another word for it in Arabic, I think. Um, so th this is, uh, this is the Muslim approach. This is why we can never let them get a majority in any European country, any Western country. They will eventually, 
But if if we let them, they will enforce Sharia law, and it will be it will be very very ugly. Um, Muhammad dies in the year uh, six thirty two, and fairly in fairly short order, there's a there's a schism between the the, the followers of of Muhammad. I read it coincidentally. I read an article last night uh, by by uh, a, Je- a Jesuit priest who's a very extremely, extremely intelligent man, um, who, who, who's writing about uh, Father Shaw. His name is Father James Shaw. Oh, Jay. yeah. He wrote, he he wrote, wrote on the Crisis Magazine uh, website. He writes for the Catholic but, thing all the time. What's that? He writes for the Catholic thing all he the does. time. He does. He does indeed, yes. This one, I think, was on, was on um, Crisis Magazine's website. He's, he was a college professor for years and years and years. Um, but Father Shaw actually quotes an Egyptian Jesuit named Father, get this, uh, Father Khalil, uh, 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 I don't have his name in front of me. It's, he's got three names, Khalil, there's a middle name, and then, oh, Khalil Samir Khalil, that's his name. The, the first and the last name are Khalil. Uh, Khalil Samir Khalil, S.J., is <laughs> a, is an Egyptian Jesuit, and he's a scholar of, of Islam, of Islamic history. And Father Charles' article is very good because it's, it's one educated Jesuit taking the, the findings of another educated Jesuit and sort of making it simple for the rest of us. And um, he makes the point, He's the. this is where I read the thing about they thought, they think that the Quran is an eternal thing in the mind of God. And of course it precedes the Old Testament. Of course it precedes the New Testament because it was in the mind of God. But the funny thing is the, the, the caliph that followed uh, not long after Muhammad, um, Uthman. Uh, you'll see his name spelled O-S-M-A-N, but but he spelled it U-T-H-M-A-N, Uthman. And Uthman is the one who actually took all of the other versions of the Quran. This is not well known, but there were there were lots of different versions of the Quran. The Quran was a bunch of separate writings that Muhammad came with over a long period of time. And they got gathered into one into one collection or in, into a series of collections as they got copied and so forth. So there were various books floating around claiming to be the Quran, and they had the surahs in all different orders. And apparently the the favored order of the surahs, the surahs are like the different books or different chapters of the Quran. Now, how do you spell surah? S-U-R-A-A. S-U-R-A. Okay, surah. So when they cite the, the, the Quran, they won't say from, you know, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, obviously those are the names of Christian books, but they, they'll, they'll say from Surah 1 or Surah 2 or Surah whatever. I think there are a hundred something surahs. I forget. It's been a while since I've had a Quran in my hand. Um, but <coughs> the, um, the, the favoring or, favorite order of the surahs was, was stacking them in order according to the length of the surahs. It had nothing to do with chronology. So it's kind of a meandering book. What Uthman did was take all the other editions of the Quran and destroy them and kept one Quran only. This was the official Quran. This is the thing that's eternal. The funny thing is, from the very beginning of the religion, there were divergent claims as to what the real Quran was. Well, the caliph settled it. He took everything else and destroyed it and said, okay, this is the real one. Um, and somehow, by the will of Uthman, we get what was, the, what was eternal in the mind of God. Um, 
And I mean, Christian claims about the scriptures do not are not so sweeping. <laughs> yeah, we we admit divergent codices. We admit, <laughs> you know, we admit that it took a long time to write. That there were many people who did it. There were many copyists and everything. We we make a scripture. Christian scripture scholars, including Catholics, are always saying these things and have long said these things. Um, at the time of St. Jerome, you know, he knew that there were different divergent codices and so forth. Um, <clears throat> we don't pretend that the thing got chucked down from heaven immaculate. That's not our claim. about. And by the way, this is an explanation of why sola scriptura is nonsense. The closest other thing to a sola scriptura religion in the world is Islam. Protestantism, which which has as one of its great pillars, Sola Scriptura, very much resembles Islam in this. That th this is the perfect book that came from heaven, and uh, and and there's nothing uh, there's nothing at all that you can question about it. You can't even question its origins. In fact, to question the origins of the Quran is considered blasphemy. So this is why there's never been an attempt at serious scholarship within Islam to explore the origins of the book. Yeah, brother, doesn't uh, uh, doesn't the Book of Mormon uh, isn't it also uh, of the same making? Well, okay, it kind of I, fell I from heaven and it's infallible, and uh, that's it. That's the word, and nothing else matters, yeah, right? Yeah, but I, you know, even Joseph Smith, I don't. Th I mean, Joseph Smith claims to have found these tablets, and he had the funky glasses, and he could translate them because he had the funky glasses, and they've never found the tablets. Secret and all that. decoder uh, ring. I, I guess for the purposes mm -hmm. of this, I wasn't going to take Mormonism okay, seriously. Okay, all right. I, I was just curious. <laughs> all right, just, just curious. But. Actually, there are numerous resemblances between Mormonism and Islam, not only the traditional polygamy that still, by the way, exists in some some sort of fringy uh, um, uh, Mormon diehards. But um, the, uh, the yeah, I mean, not only that, but uh, even their concept of heaven, which is extremely carnal. Uh, both of them have an extremely carnal conception of heaven. Um uh, very, very male, fav favoring the male of the species who gets multiple wives and all that stuff. And it's basically a, a very long orgy. Um, yeah, so there are lots of resemblances there. But uh, yeah, the, 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 the strange character of the revelation and um, but but I mean, in a way, Islam is less stupid than Mormon than Mormonism in the claim in their claims about the scriptures. Because uh, they believe that all these things were dictated to Muhammad, whereas Joseph Smith somehow got the charism of being an archaeologist and finding these <laughs> plates and then getting the funky glasses where he could actually translate them. Um, it's There's something much more fantastical sounding. I mean, they're both fantastical, but there's something much more... Um, you know, Marvel comic book sounding but, but, about... But, the, brother, the, just uh, because I know uh, a little bit about Islam, only because I've interviewed Andrew Bizad, uh, who has a PhD in Islamic studies a couple dozen times, and he's told me in Arabic several times that one of the uh, the signature parts about, the, about Islam today, anyways, is that... Um, if there's something in the Quran to suggest it, and a Muslim goes ahead and does it, um, and it and it does what he wants what he wants done, then it's okay because Allah must have willed it. And yeah. I, I can't remember how you say it in, in Arabic, but basically anything you want to do, you can do. There there, there is no limitation. There's no um, other than the, the some of the uh, prohibitions that they have. Things like sodomy, 
Uh, for example, or uh, public acts of uh, homosexuals, licentious behavior. Uh-huh. If Allah wills it, then it's it's okay. That includes killing, yeah. maiming, raping. It's a voluntarist raping. religion. Yes. And this is one thing to remember about Islam, is it's, it's fundamentally voluntarist. It's opposed to reason. It is not a religion that favors reason. The will of, us, the will of Allah can change. And Allah can claim one thing, can will one thing now, and then will its opposite later. There is no. We have a concept of natural law. The, the, in, in the West, whether you're a Christian or a Jew or whatever, in the West, there's at least some vague remnants of, of this concept of natural law. Yeah, it's taken a big beating in modern times. Sure has. But traditionally, we've had the notion of the, of the natural law. Such a thing does not exist in Islam. They do not respect that at all. They're... Why? Because it's all dependent upon the will of, of Allah, and and Islam by its very in its very meaning etymologically uh, it it means submission. So we submit to the will of Allah, and that's and that's how we find favor. Um, and therefore, if you discern that something's the will of Allah, no matter how reprehensible it is, there's no question of natural law. So raping children, um, all sorts of acts of horror. I mean, you know, the, the, it's well known that in Afghanistan, uh, as they say, w- well, women are for children, but little boys are for pleasure. <laughs> Good so the, the, the boogery of, of, of prepubescent boys is a common feature of, of Afghan life. And uh, do you remember when those soldiers got in trouble, those U.S. commanders got in trouble in, in um, Afghanistan for beating the heck out of a out of an Afghan uh, army official? I do not. Yeah, the, the, look it up. There's an Afghan army official who, who they, they heard screams of children, these, these American, this American commander and some of his other guys, and they found this, found this guy doing something unspeakable to a little boy, and they beat the starch out of him. They, like, you know, the guy was all bloody and wounded and injured and stuff at the end of it. Well, it, it, was a, it was a bit of a diplomatic row between us and the Afghanis. And our government apologized to them, and this guy got punished. And he was told, no, 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 they do this. It's their culture. That's what so, they do, right? Yeah. I mean, the Turks were known for this kind of thing. Um, even Hollywood knew this. I mean, back in the day when uh, – what's his name? Um, when Lawrence of Arabia was out – um, there's there's a scene that doesn't exactly subtly hint at uh, at the fact that the Turks were into into that vice. So this is this is real, this is quite real. Uh, anyway, um, so it's a voluntarist religion, and if you can if if you can make a credible claim that that, that Allah wills it, then you can do it no matter how reprehensible it is. The, the uh, Islam being a being being that Muhammad was a um, a, a, a military leader as well as a, a brigand and a prophet, um, that tradition got passed on through the caliphs, who, after all, their title t- says that they're successors of of Muhammad, and it was a religion that was spread by the sword. The gospel, the the Catholic Church, was spread principally by evangelism and martyrdom. It's the very opposite. Islam was spread uh, by the sword. And um, so in 332, at the year of, of Muhammad's death, you had um, <clears throat> a significant battle. After Muhammad dies, you have a significant battle between a, uh, a, a an Arab leader, an Arab Christian leader, who did not want 
Islam to have complete hegemony over the Arab world. And his name was uh, Al-Mundur, and he was of the tribe of Ghassan. And these were all Christian Arabs. And they rose up and they fought. And Al-Mundur died in hand-to-hand combat with uh, Muhammad II. And um, this, these people are Brother Francis's ancestors. So he gets a little bit patriotic when he's talking about this. Now, brother, uh, because, uh, his, because he's from the tribe of Ghassan. Now, brother also gives the number of. He says that the estimates vary; no one knows for sure. But he gave the number of some somewhere between ten and eleven million uh, martyrs during the 11, age. Yeah. Eleven million martyrs during the age of the catacombs. We have, <coughs> brother, we have three minutes left. Oh, three minutes. Whoa! I, I guess I just kept talking. Um, yeah, so so I mean, it's hard to wrap up the whole, the, the rest of the history of Islam. But from this point on, this new force that enters the world makes things really hard for the Christians. We had to beat, we had to beat them. Formerly Christian lands all over the East. Think of the first few ecumenical councils: Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon. Uh, all of them are now Muslim cities. All of them. So the the very cradle of Christendom is Islamic. Uh, they, they went all over, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, uh, uh, all, all of those areas of the Arab world, um, and then they spill, and, and Persia, they spilled out I- across North Africa, the, what they call the Maghreb, took over all that, Algiers, Morocco, etc. And then they went up, they crossed um, the, the, uh, the Rock of Gibraltar, named after uh, Tariq ibn Zaid, uh, and they they went into Spain, and for 800 years— 800 years. And they also made uh, inroads into France, too. They took over a third of France, and thank God for uh, Charles Martel, the hammer, um, who who uh, beat them back at the Battle of Poitiers and, and, and chased their butts out of France. Yeah, and, excuse and the, me, I get all— And the problems. Mongols stopped them going east. They couldn't mess with the Mongols. They, they met their match in the Mongolians— so they whooped the Persians, but they couldn't take the Mongolians, and so that's where that's where they were stopped. Uh, bought yours book about Eastern about Christianity uh, Eastern Christianity under Islam is um, I know you've read it, brother, or I think you've read it. Uh, has a lot of this history in it, guys. If you're interested in in reading it, it's B A T Y apostrophe O E R. Bought your uh, brother about two minutes left. Um, two. Uh, let's see. Um, well, that brother gives a succession of um, years of great battles between between Christians and Muslims, and he makes the point very very briefly that the Crusades were wars of defense. I mean, I think everybody listening here would know this. These these were not wars of aggression. These were wars of of defense after the wars of aggression had happened and the Holy Land was taken over by a hostile outside invading force. Um, of the Turks. Um, one thing about Islam is you've, you've got different um, d- different uh, champions of Islam over the years. And as a new group of people is converted to Islam, they become the real firebrands. So when the Arabs got a bit fat and lazy, it was the Turks that took over. Uh, at one point, it becomes the North Africans, the Berbers. It was the fanatical Berbers who were the ones who spilled up into Spain, took over Spain. They were very, very, very dark people. Um, this is why the Spanish have a dish that's made of white rice and black beans, and they call it Cristianos y Moros, Christians and Moors, because the the uh, the, the Berbers were these very dark Africans who were all Muslims. Um, 
I don't know what else I can say about this except to say that Brother Francis talks about the Tripoli seminar and says that all of these efforts at ecumenism with Islam are a joke. He said, he said, if you don't know history, if if you if you know history, you know that whenever Islam has hegemony, uh, they take over everything and they outlaw everything else, and, or reduce you to demitude. This is the history. And uh, so he, he, he's, he says all this armed defense of Christen, Christendom against Islam, it's entirely justified. The idea that you can't defend yourselves from the, these aggressors uh, is, 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 completely, is a complete fabrication and unjust. Thank God our forebears didn't think that way. Well, there's only one, uh, one entity in uh, this uh, uh, temporal realm of ours, and then ultimately in the spiritual realm, it's going to benefit from disarming while the Muslims are charging. And uh, that is not the Holy Trinity. Folks, that is all the time we have for today. Read your history of Islam. Uh, you could get the book in my bookstore at mikechurch.com forward slash shop. Uh, it is called Hilaire Balogs on the Great Heresies. Uh, the longest chapter is the last one, and it's all about, uh, or second to last one, the penultimate. And it is all about the, uh, the wicked, uh, sinister history of Islam. It's a great read. Brother, thank you. Thank you, sir. See you next week. Uh, folks, uh, the uh, episode of uh, Lecture 5 upload is, or download ready, rather, is ready for you. We will try and get episode uh, or Lecture 6 up tomorrow, uh, our discussion tonight. Thanks for being with us. Stay tuned for a brand new episode of Recon Quest right here on the Crusade Channel, King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers. All right, brother. Been a long day. I am heading out. All right. Well, sorry if I was a little disjointed there. I, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I had my Skype on. I think what happened is I tried to. I, I saw that it was. A, it's already seven. So I tried to call you. I think at the same exact time you tried to call me. <laughs> uh, no worries. I uh, will hopefully get your commercial on tomorrow. Uh, it's in there. Uh, we're cutting it down to try to get it down to 30. I'm trying to get everything back on the clock. It got really disjointed and sloppy for a while there. And so uh, we were re-recording things and uh, getting them back into, uh, in, in, into proper intervals so that we can uh, control things a lot better and not have them have to fade out. So all that's uh -huh. good. Brother, did, did you ever get a priest? Yeah, uh, Father Greg is here, the the, the Canadian. Oh, um, he came when, back. When, okay, he finally got his papers. Well, he didn't get his papers, but when with, when the new year came in, um, it reset the amount of time he's allowed to be in the United States, and we are working on him getting that visa. Okay. Uh, I uh, I just happen to know somebody that's uh, with the uh, the SSPX now, and. He actually knows of you, and he said, "Well, if he needs, uh, if he's still looking."